Back in the mid-80s, Margaret and I spent uh, three years in Zimbabwe teaching in a Bible school, and God knit our hearts uh, to a lot of people, but in particular to uh, a man who spent those entire three years there with us. And uh, this is his 23rd year to be at this church, and it's always a great pleasure, always a great joy. I've already heard what he's got to share, and I just want to say yes, 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 yes. Would you welcome Clopas Chitaka? If it was one person, I think I would have said, maybe I paid you to do that, but uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't pay all of you to do that. <laughs> what a joy to be here today, and uh, I'm delighted to be traveling with Sarita. That's why I'm behaving a lot. Can you please welcome Sarita? <laughs> I have a way how I do what I do. Uh, it doesn't work here, but from where I come from, there are only two things that are, or two people that help me to change a man. I work with a lot of leaders that some of them are pretty radical and very difficult. And uh, I always say, if I can't change you, and if the Lord cannot change you, I know your wife will change you. So. <laughs> Our wives are the greatest gift God gives us apart from our Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen. Well, what a joy to be here and to be in this family. Um, we always look forward to it. In the earlier service, I was mentioning that I almost had a difficulty in our scheduling coming this time. Uh, but after looking at everything else, I realized I have a good record. I need, don't need to break it. <laughs> so... And, uh, <clears throat> but uh, above all, we wanted to spend some time with Pastor. And uh, on Friday, when we came, we came here to watch the play, we spent some time, we went for, to dinner with Pastor Ronnie. And he was sharing with us about um, how in this season, following the promotion of Mama, how, how amazing he felt the love of the saints in this house, supportive and around him and uh, the family at large. And I want to say to you that that is what Christianity is really all about. If we can successfully share the love of God with the brethren, and we, you have no idea how much all our leaders need to feel. I'm not talking about just you wishing it away, but actually expressing it enough for the other person to realize that I am genuinely loved uh, by these people. So I want to honor you for being a church that truly loves their leaders. And may God bless you truly for all that he is teaching us to do. Amen. Amen. Well, if I had a way of changing my schedule, next week would have been the best Sunday. Did I hear something like fried chicken? Do you know what that sounds like? <laughs> that is... Uh, it's called the gospel bed. Did you know that? 
Don't ever mention fried chicken in the presence of a preacher. Otherwise, I'll change my ticket. <laughs> I want to do... I want to take a little survey before we get started, just to make sure that whether to find out if I'm being led of the Lord or not. Now, how many among you are called Jonah as your first name? Jonah. Is there anybody called Jonah? Whoa. Okay. Is there anyone who has a son called Jonah? None. Are you serious? Okay, is there anybody who has a pregnancy that they are planning to call Jonah? Okay. <laughs> it's not any single person called Jonah. <laughs> I don't know whether you know that he is in the Bible. Did you know that Jonah is in the Bible? <laughs> I, I, I know Christians for wanting to call their children or names in the Bible. You probably missed Jonah somewhere along the way. Well, that bothers me, but... Turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah chapter 4. <laughs> but again, I'm saying that I really believe that even this little survey points to perceptions that I wanted to establish and see how, <laughs> what our thoughts were on this character. Chapter 4 on verse 1, but Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So we also look at the 10th and 11th verse. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern over the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand and also many animals. So God bless the reading of his word. I, I really intended to... to make reference to Jonah because in some way it builds on the thought that I have regarding how God's people share the love of God with the world. Uh, I want you to know that <clears throat> we were called to share God's love with those that are around us. And that's really what our entire journey is entirely all about. There are many people who have a problem with the story of Jonah. The majority of them think that it's not historically fact. They think that it's some kind of a mythological story that was told. And I know some of the reasons have to do with the fact that those of you who fish, you think you have never caught a fish, the one that swallowed Jonah. So there must be a problem with the story. And there are those who actually say, oh, well, you know, uh, they should have been uh, that story about the tree uh, and the story about the storms in the Mediterranean, there are other people that are actually trying to make a weather argument about what they know concerning the storms that arise in the Mediterranean. But I, I, I want you to know the strange thing about it is that the story of Jonah appears in Assyrian literature because of the fact that at the end of the day when Jonah preached in Nineveh, a decree was offered by the king who was actually called Ashdod III. 
He was the one who actually ordered that everything should fast, including the animals. And that record actually exists in Assyrian literature, but Christians are busy doubting whether the story of Jonah is fact. And not only that, but you need to understand that the fundamental principle of biblical hermeneutics teaches that if Jesus accepted something as historically fact, you have no reason to doubt its validity. Jesus made reference to the story of Jonah. That tells you that if Jesus believed it, I think I choose Jesus because I am almost sure you don't know better than Jesus. <laughs> so at the end of the day, you need to know that if Christ made reference to the story of Jonah, he believed in the story of Jonah and its historicity. So there's no way that the story of Jonah could be feeble. Now, I, I, some other people then raise issues like, oh, this fish story is a problem. What happened inside the belly of the fish? Goodness me. Jonah could have died in that time. And they tell you some stuff about how the fish metabolism works. We'll talk about that later. And I, 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 the other time I had somebody writing about the fact that there's no way that Jonah could have survived. He could have died of hunger. And my answer would be that you do not know the amount of sushi that is inside the belly of a fish. There's nobody who died inside. <laughs> There's no way anybody would die in the belly of a fish. Jonah made it through. But you know the reason why we never talk about call our children Jonah or even name anyone Jonah? Because it's associated with rebellion. <laughs> and somehow I think it's not like you missed Jonah. You knew about him. You avoided him. That's the whole, that's the whole idea. And what happens is we think about his story. Somebody who gets... Summoned by God to go and tell a message to the city of Nineveh. And he chooses to go a different direction. That's the story of Jonah. The city of Nineveh was about 500 miles from Jonah's hometown. Tashish was 2,500 miles. This guy's rebellion was that long. He chooses that he will not go and tell these people and warn them about the impending judgment. Rather, he chooses to take a voyage to go to Tashish. And, you know, the thing, and all our judgments on Jonah have been primarily based on that. Do you know that the city of Nineveh, God calls it the great city. That's how he refers it to, to it. And not only that, uh, did you know that Nineveh was actually in present-day Iraq? The exact location is what today is called Mosul. So we know about that because... U.S. military have had engagement in those areas. In fact, there was a statue, a monument dedicated to Jonah, which was destroyed when the war started in Mosul. So, Nineveh was not difficult to go to in the days of Jonah only. If I were to ask you today to go to Mosul, I don't think you will go. <laughs> so, at the end of the day, sometimes we... We have these thoughts about Jonah. What kind of a guy was he? How could he receive an explicit message from God? But let me, let me quickly share a few thoughts about why I think Jonah did not go. So he gets a message, you need to go to Nineveh. He chooses to do the opposite. Why did Jonah not go? The simple, explicit answer, he didn't like the people. Now, I think you have people that you don't like to. Now, sometimes we try to hide behind the idea that, oh, no, 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 I like everybody. Huh? For God so loved the world. I know God so loved the world. But I'm asking you, do you like everybody? Now, there are people that you don't like. There was nothing else to it. No. 
Jonah did not like the Ninevites. And for very fair reasons. The Ninevites were actually bad people. <laughs> these, are no, these were not good people. They were known for horrible things that they would do to their neighbors. Their treatment of their neighbors was terrible. They had punished Israel many times. They had done things. Their methods of punishment were the most atrocious that you could ever read in ancient history. And here God speaks to this man and he says, I want you to go and warn them about the impending judgment. In the heart of Jonah, he said, no. They should get punished because they are bad people and I don't like for them to, be, to repent and see the mercy of God. Not only that, the most interesting thing is that he actually had a scripture for it. There's a lot of things that you do and you actually probably have a scripture for not liking certain people. Now, when you, in the time of Jonah, he had two other prophets who were contemporaries, Amos and Hosea. If you read the book of Amos chapter 5, you will find out that in that chapter, Amos talks about the fact that God was going to use Assyria as an instrument in order to pass retribution or punishment to the children of Israel. Hosea chapter 11 talks about the same story. God was going to use the children of Assyria as a means and a tool of punishment to the people of God. Jonah knew that. And he knew that these people, they are better off dead because if they are alive, God is going to use them in order to bring punishment to the people of God. So he actually had a scriptural premise to take the decision that he took. He de definitely believed they deserved what was coming to them. And in the morning I was talking about the fact that whenever it comes to deserving, that's the language of Christians. We believe every time, in fact, if any one of you who is sitting next to you today went through a certain moment of mishap or misfortune, usually your best way of studying that scenario is that I knew it was coming because uh, the other day, uh, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> we kind of like always look at each other and say, well, I, it was just a matter of time. Every time you hear believers do that. If something happens, they, they have a way of explaining. In fact, in this country, it gets worse because every time I, 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 don't, I don't forget people explaining what happens. Why did Katrina happen? Why did this flood or hurricane hit Florida? You, why did this happen in this other street? You find people literally putting up publications to explain that it was always coming. I knew about that because there's this other thing and that other thing and that other thing. They deserve what was coming to them. Now, what we don't know is that that may not necessarily be the way our God works. In fact, if you got what you deserved, you, you wouldn't be even in this church right now. <laughs> the, in fact, Psalms 103 is the one that teaches us better about that. He has not rewarded me according to my what? Iniquity. That's the truth. Romans 3.23 teaches us that the wages of sin is what? All have sinned and came short of the glory of what? Of God. And what are the wages of sin? Death. Did we all sin? Yes. And we all came short of the glory of God. But somehow in our minds, we are always thinking that they got what they deserve. Now, let me quickly jump into the story. And we pass through this narrative to get to what we're talking about. So the bottom line principle that you need to understand is that the real reason why Jonah could not preach to Nineveh is that he fundamentally did not like them. He actually believes it was wrong for them to be spared. He believed they deserved the punishment that was coming to them. The harder thing and the lesson to all of us about Jonah is the 
the misery of receiving the word of God, yet not sharing the heart of God for the people. And that is the story about the Christian church. We were given a message for the people. But we do not all the time share the same heart of God for the same people. And that explains the sad reality that we read in the narrative of Jonah. Now Jonah chooses to go to Tarshish. Gets in a boat, pays the fare, is ready to go. Goes to the very bottom of the ship uh, in the lower deck and is resting. The Lord sends a storm. The storm comes and it's deadly. Everyone on the uh, ship understands this experience that we are now going to die. So each one starts calling on their God. This is interesting. In fact, that part when you read, I read it, I read it, I don't know how many times. And I look at it and I see a desperate moment when the scriptures say each one started calling their God. So the Hindu was calling his God. The Muslim, the Hare Krishna, the Confucianist, the Buddhist, everybody. The African guy is calling his ancestors. Everyone is praying. One man is not praying. His name is called Jonah. He's relaxed in the boat. And the captain gets concerned. He says, I don't understand. He goes over to him and he says, why are you not praying? We are just about to die. Things happen, they are sure this is the guy who actually is responsible for the problem. But I, I like the answers of Jonah. And by the way, it is in these answers that I, I clearly know that if we really understood Jonah, we would call our children Jonah. He was a very spiritual man. He knew God very well. And he says to them that, stop praying. <laughs> Throw me over the water. He said, no, 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 we'll call on our God. We believe that our gods can avert this situation. He says, you don't understand. I'm a Hebrew. I serve the maker of heaven and earth. The God that I worship is the only one who has authority over the elements of nature. If he doesn't change this situation, no matter how much howling you're going to do, nothing will change. I said, throw me over the water. Now, you know the part that is funny is that he doesn't offer to jump on his own. He actually wants, he puts them in a very difficult situation. Why don't you just jump? Do you know that this man actually pleaded with him that we do not want blood guilty. Please, we do not want your God to punish us. He says, throw me over the water or else you will all die. They even make a second attempt and the Bible says they tried rowing the boat so that by some chance they may get to the land. And they are pleading that we do not want blood guilt. He says, listen, all of the things you are doing are not going to spare your life. Throw me over the water and without that you will die. Jonah knew God very well. He understood the sovereignty of God. He knew that he served the supreme Jehovah, the ruler of the universe. There is none other like unto him and only him controls the elements. Not only that, you see that again in the second chapter during his prayer, you actually see that his prayer clearly shows a man who really knew God. There are very few things that help you to understand how a man knows God more than the words he uses in prayer. <laughs> if I ask you to pray right now, I would easily know how much you know God. <laughs> because prayer is the simplest thing that indicates the level of relationship. Not only that, you, you, because 
if I was talking to Pastor Ronnie, Pastor Ronnie knows me very well, or if I was, had a conversation with Wayne, he knows me well enough to know what words, even if he says some things that may seemingly sound offensive to you, we can understand each other. Why? Because we know each other. Words in prayer, usually, if you want to know whether a person is a novice or is really knowledgeable of God, just ask him to, them to pray. Once they start saying some stuff that you know, nobody talks to God like that. <laughs> and, uh, and the Bible teaches us that Jonah prayed in the belly of a fish. You listen to his words. And the passage that I read, look at the words that he uses. He actually tells God that I know you very well. You are super compassionate. You are a merciful God. I know you that even if they are Assyria, but if they turn to you and repent, you always forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go. Listen to that. Can you believe that? This guy knew God's mercy. He understood. He actually uses what we call in scripture covenant compound terms. Like I knew you are bound in loving kindness. Those are not words that we use in regular vernacular. You can't meet a girl and you say, I feel loving kindness towards you. Those are not words that you use in regular language. That's a compound term. Only you was surely used in Bible times to describe the very nature of God. Tender messes. Why? Because vocabulary falls short in describing the God and every part of his attributes. So we form these words in order to describe the very nature of God. The Bible teaches us that at that moment, when they threw him over, the storm calms down. Then he gets into the fish. This is where the fish comes in. And inside the fish, he begins a prayer band inside there. Praise until the moment comes, the fish delivers him on the shores of Nineveh. And it was always an issue among Bible students. Why did Nineveh repent like that? Why was he... Why were they so receptive to his message? And I was telling in the morning about a story I read one time when a, 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 a certain theologian wrote that the reason was because Jonah was bleached. <laughs> Come. And he says, he tries to give a scientific explanation about how the metabolism of a fish works when somebody stays for this number of days. So the idea is that he's like me. I leave America right now and I go back home. I land in Zimbabwe and I'm suddenly a white man. Everybody listens to me. There's no way that they would reject what I'm talking about because I have a change in pigmentation because of where I was. So this is what they assume happened to Jonah. No, I don't think that happened. What really happened, here's something that again demonstrates how far God will go to show and extend his love to the lost. The book of Jonah is a missiological book. It's a book that teaches us that even from time immemorial, once upon a time when Israel was the only elect of God, but the love of God was always far-reaching to other nationalities. It was the duty of Israel to communicate that mercy to the lost. The same responsibility that lies squarely on the church of Jesus Christ today. To tell the world that no matter how much sin you have committed, no matter what you have done, God still loves you. That is the message that we still carry to the world. We don't have to count their sins. We don't have to check on what is your track record? How much have you done? You know, in Zimbabwe some years ago, there was a very senior preacher, a whole group of preachers who started on a movement of telling people that they had not confessed enough. Unbelievable. And they would call church meetings like this and ask people that, well, tell us some other things that you did not mention when you came to Christ because they are still holding you back. So imagine, 
Someone will come up in front here and you pick up somebody and you say, hey, brother Kevin, come over here. Tell us what you did for the last 37 years that you did not mention. And brother would dig on all his debt in the past. And, and I, I, I think I was hated very much because I remember a large rally that I stood up to speak that the only reason why these people were doing this is because they were curious of sins because of dirty minds. It is not the will of God to know the details of men's sin. It's true. How do I know that? I know that in the Bible. Now you remember the story when Jesus Christ actually had a confrontation with the Pharisees. They brought a woman whom they said we caught her on the what? Act. Don't pretend like you don't know the last part of that verse. It says we caught her on the what? Act. So I don't need to interpret much on what act that was. Now Jesus does something very strange. Finally, all these men walk away. He remains with the woman. Now, that was a good time to say, okay, can you elaborate on this act? How act, how, what was exactly going on? Now, I, I need to know before I pass forgiveness on you. Now, tell me exactly what, what was the story with the man? What is his name? Give me all the details. Now, what time did the act start and what time did it end? You think Jesus was curious about that? No. He says, daughter, neither me do I condemn you. That's the message. <laughs> I do not what? Condemn you. I have no desire to know details about all the gory details about what was happening when these guys caught you. I just want you to know. I have no intention of embarrassing you. I just want you to know. Don't do it again. The message of God, we miss the message of God because our minds are curious about sin. We, we actually like to hear that. In fact, we, we have a whole lot of prophetic movement arising in Africa today. Services in thousands, among thousands, where a man stands up to just talk about girlfriends, boyfriends. And people pick up, and I always say, the reason why they go is because we are already curious to know the dark side of each other. So we want to know all these things. So if I come up with a prophetic message to talk about this guy's dark side and that guy's dark side, all of you will pay attention. Ooh, ooh, ooh. You like to hear that. <laughs> so that curiosity is nothing else but an appeal to your carnality. And so I am massaging that very side of you that actually desire darkness more than anything else. So the scripture does teach us that Jonah... Starts preaching in Nineveh. I believe that the attention that he got comes from historically what we know about the Assyrians. They worshipped Dagon, who was a fish-shaped god. And because of that, imagine you are right by the beach of Nineveh. And at that very moment, relaxing or enjoying yourself or fishing, a large fish comes and vomits a messenger instantly. Do you know the amount of attention that you will pay to that messenger? So here's the interesting part. The first time God had given a message to Jonah, he disobeyed it. The second time God says he's not going to give him a message. He will only give him the message when he gets there. In fact, it's very interesting. I, I teach in missions a lot and I say that one of the reasons why I believe God did that is because the fundamental issue about the Great Commission is not the message. The message is not the hard part. The message is the go eat part. If you obey the go in therefore, the message will always come. So as he lands on the shores of Nineveh, immediately the message comes. The message is interesting. In Hebrew, it's only five letters. Five words, I mean. Five words only. 
Nineveh, 40 days will be destroyed. That's it. Immediately, Jonah likes the message. The reason why he preached a lot, he liked the message. The message was the perfect message. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The very kind of message that you want to deliver to your enemies and the people you don't like. You will never have a more perfect message like that. He had all the energy to pass up and down the whole such great city, which took three days. The scriptures say he would be shouting as loud as he can. Do you know that he never made an invitation for salvation? Never asked anyone to repent. Never told anyone to turn away from their ways. Never warned anyone to stop anything. Forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. The opposite happens. The people turn to God. Scripture says in sackcloth and ashes, even the king repents, comes back and calls a fast. It's the greatest conversion story of the whole Bible. Why we don't call our sons Jonah makes me wonder. Because nobody ever preached in history successfully as Jonah. He preached enough that the donkeys and the chicken and the dogs were fasting. That's what the scriptures say. Everything did not eat or drink. I think I will find a Jonah next year. Now, what happens is, what you then see is that this is the kind of situation and environment that he, he creates when people start to repent. But the amazing thing is people repent, Jonah gets angry. And this is the crust of the issue. Why are you angry? I didn't want them to repent. You see, brothers and sisters, it's really the part that really bothers me about the fact that could this be true about our nature? Does that happen that in spite of the fact that we are the bearers of the message of God, but we do not carry his heart for the people? The same people that we were called to tell the love of God. You know, we do not have a problem only with the world. I actually believe that our bigger problem is always expressed in the church itself. We have a hard time with one another. They probably, right now, there is someone who was supposed to be seated on another chair next to you who may not be here today because of someone who is already here today. That's the way how it works. I've always said this all the time. Everywhere I've ever gone, I've never found anyone who actually left the church or backslid because either they fall in love with the devil or they hated God. None of them. Everyone I met who left church always had an accusation on someone who is already in the church. They don't like their hair. They don't like their, their beard. They don't like their shoes. They don't like their singing. They don't like it either. It's too loud or it's too quiet or it's too... You don't even know what to do. In fact, I, I had a story. The, the, the other day I was going through a story where a, a pastor was a new pastor at a church and someone came to him and he said, thank you very much, but your preaching was terrible. And the pastor said, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I think next time I will improve on that. The next Sunday did much better. Then the guy, another guy, the same guy came over to him and he said, thank you very much, but your suit was horrible. He said, okay, I'm going to work on that next time and I'm going to do something about that. The third week, he preached that and said, oh, uh, Thank you very much, but your message was too long. He said, he said no, man, I, okay, I'm going to work on, on this. Then the next thing, one of the elders of the church eventually walked up to him and said, 
hey, pastor, don't worry about that guy. Don't worry. That's what he does all the time. He just repeats what everybody else is saying. So clearly, what, what, what you then realize is that even as we sit in the church of God, we are always talking about each other. We think we like each other. No, the reason is because we spend too little time with each other. That's why we can bear with that. So the service is ending not long from now, right? So each one is going to be taking their route home. I can bear this guy for a little while, but we probably don't like each other as much. Listen, brothers and sisters, there are so many things I have always said. The simplest way to stay in church long, always remember that not everyone was raised by your mother. If you keep that in your mind, you will stay very long in church. <laughs> so uh, this guy behaves this way. I, I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, you don't have to worry yourself too much about. Oh, always remember people grow up differently in different places. They behave differently. They do things differently. You don't have to worry about that. But you didn't come for them, first of all. So you don't need to worry about that. So you don't have to worry. You don't have to be overly consumed by that. You need to know that you did not come for that. We have too much concerns over each other in the house of God. In fact, one thing that I, I meant to mention earlier on, which I was consumed by, was the fact that when I read the Bible and I, I, I see the story of the apostles of Jesus, and the scripture saying Jesus was walking with them, passing through Samaria, and the Bible says, and James and John said, Lord, shall we now call down the fire? Can you believe that? You know, I wish that was not in the Bible. <laughs> that Actually was said by John. Have you ever read the gospel of John? Do you know how much love is in that book? It's the gospel and the message of love. That same guy one day said, Lord, shall we now call fire upon these Samaritans? Can you believe that? Now, as we look and we read that, sometimes in our hearts we feel like we are better than that. We wouldn't do something like that. No, we actually probably are worse than that. And if we had the ability and the means and the reason, we probably would do it. Shall we now call fire from heaven? The other day I was contemplating on a scripture. When Jesus Christ talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said, you think you are better than your fathers, right? You paint the, 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 the graves of the prophets that were killed. Somehow you want to sanctify yourself with that. And you say to yourself that had we been exist in existence during that time in history, we would not have done that. He says, you do not know that in doing that, you're actually incriminating yourself. The equivalence of that is that you got a guy who says, I'm not a terrorist. I just give them money. You are a terrorist. If you support the cause and you do not condemn it in the same way, even though you may not be doing exactly what they did, but you actually belong to the same category. God gave us his word. To love a world out there. It's a harder world. We have too much divisions and things that concern us among ourselves that when I think about that, then I ask myself, then how better are we out there with the world? You know, earlier when I shared a story, I came from Denver, spent some time with two pastors that truly changed my life in a big way. One of them is called Brady. He pastors New Life Church. Big church with more than 14,000 people. The other one is uh, from California. He has a church in Hollywood called Mosaic. Now, here's what I learned. In the course of our discussion and listening to the presentations, I am talking about what we have in Africa. In Africa, we have what are called tribes. The shocking part is that Pastor Brady says, do you know what? The biggest problem in America, why we cannot share the love of God, is because of tribalism. That throws me off. Tribalism in America. How can that be? 
There's no tribe. There are no tribes in America. Talk to me as an African. I'll tell you about tribes. We have 3,000 on the African continent. We speak 2,400 languages across the continent. The, most, the place where Babel was more successful than anywhere else is in Africa. If, if the world had not given us English, we wouldn't be able to talk to each other. Tribalism in America? Oh, yeah. And these are very senior pastors. They probably have a better understanding of this culture and its nuances better than I do. They say, our tribes are different, brother. We have a tribe called Republican. Another one is called Democrat. Then the other one is called Progressive something. I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know what, liberal or whatever. These are the tribes. Blacks, whites, Latino, da, da, da. These are the tribes that we have in this country. And our affinity with those tribes sometimes is a hindrance to our expression of the love of God to the other person. It matters more to us that we are like this and we hold on tenaciously to that identity more than our place in redemption. And it's becoming the biggest hindrance to the expression of the love of God. We would rather have them die. Our story is worse than Nineveh. To Jonah, he had all these problems with the Ninevites. And he felt like, no, I don't think, even if they deserve what is coming to them. Let me read you this story. Uh, this is actually something that came some years ago. Some writer wrote about this, and this was supposed to be something that was comic. But here's how it sounds. Please listen to me very carefully. I hope I can read it clearly. Once I saw this guy on a bridge, he was about to jump, kill himself. And I said, don't do it. He said to me, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. You see, that's a Springhouse member. Do you believe in God? God loves you. Do you believe in God? The guy said, yes, I believe in God. I said to him, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, I am a Christian. I said, wow, praise the Lord, me too. I am a Christian. Now, are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, well, I am Protestant. He said, oh, me too. I'm also Protestant. Now, which franchise? Are you Baptist or what? He said, oh, I am Baptist. He said, me too. I'm a Baptist too. He said, okay, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, well, uh, I am actually Northern Baptist. He said, wow, that's wonderful. Me too. He said, now, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, oh no, I am Northern Conservative Baptist. Then I said to him, oh, me too. Now, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. He said, oh my God, my brother, me too. I am also Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. Now, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Baptist Council of 1912? The man replied and he said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. And he replied and said, die you heretic.
Are we divided that far? Can you imagine how many things were common among these guys until they got to the date of which council they are affiliated to? That is not even an African story. We don't have things like that in Africa. <laughs> we actually don't even share in these kind of problems. <laughs> but this is the truth about what happens even in our culture. We look at one another. We look at all these plaques and identities and affinities that we have placed ourselves in. And we feel like we stick with our clubs and groups. And we feel like the other group is not making it. They don't belong to us. I was talking in the morning about the fact that in the early years when pastor was, I was here on Friday and I attend, came here to see the drama, the play that was going on in this church. But the thing that struck me and I, we had a conversation with my wife afterwards was that I just marveled to see the number of unbelievers that walk in that church. Does it matter? It matters. Because at the end of the day, we may not even have them even using our seats. <laughs> we are so much like, okay, I don't think they belong. I think they are out there. I don't think they have a place here. So I shared my story. Do you know the problem with some kind of bias that we have when it's protected by religion? It's dangerous. So I share a South African story. Some years ago, I went invited by a pastor in South Africa who is an Africana brother. We met in another country. He says to me, Clopas, I would love for you to come to our church. And he goes back two months, three months. He keeps writing. My brother, I'm working on it. I, I, I will tell you as soon as we are ready to have you come to speak. I think four or five months later, eventually the invitation came. He says, we'll fly you to Johannesburg and we'll go. Our church is in an area called Hamaskal. Very leafy upmarket place. I didn't even know how big the church was. More than 4,500 people. And the whole mess and inflow is overflowing. Everybody is African. That night, he says, I want to see you early in the morning, 30 minutes before the service. I walk into his office that morning. He says, I thought I would talk to you earlier. First of all, you are the first black person ever to step in our church. Whoa. I said, really? Now you wonder, okay, all right. And what's the other thing? He says, well, the other part is the reason why the invitation took me longer to process. He says, because there are people in this church that do not believe that a black person can be saved by Jesus. Oh my God. Now I'm supposed to preach to these people. <laughs> they don't even believe that with all that they sing about the blood, they don't believe it works on my side. <laughs> How do we then fulfill the great commission if we have beliefs of such a nature? So I was talking to Dr. Lema Duplessy, a dear friend of mine who is a professor at uh, UNISA, which is South Africa's prestigious university. And he almost got killed when he published this first book that was dealing with the issue of apartheid. He said to me, Clopas, do you know that the problem of apartheid was not just an ideology. It was an ideology that was fashioned and forged by a theology. The belief of exclusivity. The idea that we are the only candidates of salvation, though we do not mix with anybody else, and no one else is the candidate of salvation. Jesus came only for us. How do such people who believe in kind ideas of such a nature tell the world about the love of Jesus Christ? 
How do you ever read John 3.16 and say, for God so loved the world. And you forget that the majority of them who are candidates of the love of God are excluded from your belief system. We need to know that the love of God is what the world needs. And it is not just good preaching. But the difficulty we have is that somewhere in our hearts we struggle with that. We have a difficulty. We have a difficulty with our neighbors. We have a difficulty with our workmen. <laughs> we have a difficulty with those that laugh at us. Sometimes when we are dedicating ourselves to the Lord, the mockery that they sometimes uh, shower us with, it angers us. There is a part of us that really does not like everything about that. I asked the question. I said, Pastor Ronnie gave me his notes that he used to teach with years ago. And time after time, I go through all those notes. And I found out that in our discussions during our synthesis studies in Genesis, we had a conversation somewhere around the question, why did God not give the keys of the ark to Noah? You remember Noah? Guy who built this big boat? Saved everything. Now, when you read Genesis 6, it says, and when everything was, everybody was inside the ark, the Bible says, and the Lord came and he closed the ark. The ninth chapter, when the waters had abated, the Lord returned and he opened the ark. And I've always said, why didn't he? Come on, God, you don't trust Noah? Give him the keys. Do you know that if God had given keys to Noah, there would be a, been a bigger disaster than? Now, I try to think of myself as Noah. My wife was with me in the ark. And suddenly we hear sound screaming on the walls of the ark. And my wife says, I know that voice. That's my hairdresser. <laughs> now, now, you already got, went ahead of me, right? <laughs> so you know that I will open that ark, don't you? <laughs> because, and she's asking you, what are you talking about? That we are starting a new life without my hairdresser. Open the ark. I'm saying, you know what, baby? The Lord told us that I shouldn't open it. I should keep it locked. It's done. Say, so, no, 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 no. Open the ark. Just there alone. Just open for her. You will close it immediately. No, no, no. The Lord said we should not open this ark. Once we close it, we shouldn't open it until chapter 9. He says, no, 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 no. I said open the ark. <laughs> now, the Bible teaches us. There's a, you, do you know, I, I try to think about the other side of the story too. What about if there had always been an issue between Ham's wife and Noah's wife? You don't have this problem in America. In Africa, we have the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law problem. It's a perennial problem. It's an endless problem forever. But I can see at that very moment, Noah's wife says, you know, I never liked the M's wife. Now, can you ask her to go and pick out something outside, then just lock the ark? <laughs> I believe that our lives are conceited to that degree. They are parts of our nature. I, I, I cannot tell you that sometimes I, I get frightened when I read Jeremiah 17. And he talks about the conceit of the heart. But we, we, there is a part of our very nature that is like that. God's desire is that our hearts could be turned to be hearts. You know, I, I, I say to myself that the, one of the most marvelous prayers in the Psalms is when the writer says, search me, O God. Check every chamber of my heart. If there be any guile inside me. I want purity and ability to love your people the same way that you love them. 
I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, that if you are a child of God, as I believe you are, sometimes we wonder what grows in us with time. What grows in us in time is actually our heart. That's the biggest part of us that should grow. Our hearts become larger enough that we accommodate some things that we did not accommodate in the past. People. Sometimes we prepare for ministry probably on the theological side. We perfect our hermeneutics and our homiletics. We work on everything. We refine everything. We don't realize that the greatest thing that should grow is actually our heart. So I think about Moses. And I think about the story of Moses. He was the pastor that pastored the hardest congregation that has ever lived on earth. I mean, I, I cannot tell you the descriptions of scripture concerning the children of Israel. Stiff-necked. That's what the Bible says. A rebellious people. When you read Psalm 78 in the Bible says, you, you vexed the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> this is how bad these guys were. They were terrible people. And you are their pastor. You make one trip, they make an idol within a couple of weeks. And they begin to tell you that this is the God that took us out of Egypt. Are you serious? That's Israel. A stiff naked people. So one day God comes up with a proposition that will complete the problem. Resolve it forever. Hi Moses. Yeah. You know what I've think, decided to do? I'm going to kill all of them. The Bible teaches us that. God speaks to Moses and he says to him, I'm going to kill all of them. But I will leave you and your wife. Get busy. We'll start a new generation. Brand new people. Everybody your descendant. No outsider. They will all be from your family. They will all be your children. Brand new generation. And I've always asked leaders and I say, do you know that there's quite a number of us that would have said, Amen, Lord. I've been thinking about that for a long time. I just didn't know what you would think about it. Because even me, I'm tired of these people. I've been trying my best. I've been preaching. I've been doing everything. Even right now, I'm losing weight. I've been fasting. They just don't get any better. The Bible teaches us something about Moses. <laughs> Scriptures say that at that time, Moses said to the Lord, you really want to destroy them? You want to kill every one of them? What will the heathens say? They will say he took them out of Egypt, couldn't bring them into the land of the promise. I'm not going to be part of that. If you do that, remove my name from the book of life. I ask myself, Lord, at what point could my heart possibly be like that for people that almost stoned you. That is not easy. Can you stand on your feet? We're going to pray right now. I believe that our hearts towards the lost is the main issue.
I wish I loved them. And I wish it was easy. There's a lot of people that don't make it easy for you to love them. It's not like we, we're not witnessing. I know. Some of us, we witness all the time. Sometimes we witness to people. I, I, I think of the story of my mother-in-law. I, this has been hanging in my mind a lot, how my father-in-law was brought to Christ. And I try to think about why the Apostle Paul would actually say, and to all of you mothers and ladies whose husbands are not in the faith, Paul does not teach us to divorce them, right? But he says, no, live with them. But they will see the love of Christ in you. They will marvel to see the absence of vengeance in spite of what they have done to you. And out of that, they will know, they will understand, they will be redeemed because of your love. The most amazing Christian is not just to love the other brother in the church. But if you can tolerate and work with the believer until you win them by the love of God out there, I believe that we won't have space in the house of God. But our hearts struggle with that. We are no way far away from Jonah, I can assure you of that. We have reasons. Why? We have tribes that we belong to. We're better off with our clique, comforted all the way to eternity. We are minimized, we are diminished on our ability to share his love to people that differ with us, who are opposed to us, who argue with us, who are unrepentant or who show an attitude that shows that I don't believe you or they despise you or they do all kinds of things to us. And it's hard. I preach in my part of the world and I think one of the hardest things that I find unbelievers confronting me with is what is in it for you? I understand that. Think about the fact that you roll the, these trucks and equipment and you stage this and it costs thousands of dollars. You are proclaiming the word of God to these people. You are not even collecting an offering. They don't understand that. I understand that the world does not understand the love of God. They don't understand the fact that there is one that has loved us. How do we share the love of God? We received it of the Father and so we give it to the world. We cannot give what we have not what? Received. So I love the scripture that says, for the love of God was shared abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Do we have differences? Yes, we do. But are they anywhere closer to our story of redemption? What binds us is more important than all these peripheral and ideological ideas that divide us. Can we sacrifice our redemptive merits for political differences? Can we do that? What he came for. To die on the cross for. We trash that. And elevate our own ideological difference for things that are temporal and earthly. The love of God crosses all boundaries. The Bible says something amazing. Love is stronger than death. You know, I, 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 this is where I appreciate being an African. Because we understand love in a strange way. Because for my part of the world, we pay what is called lobola. Dalari, is that what you call it? Like you, uh, dal yeah, I don't know what, yeah. Something like that. 
but you pay something to the family. The price for me to marry my wife, very expensive. But it didn't cost me money to the family. I have to demonstrate the love I have for her. But it costed me ketone. So we talk about it teasingly. That Isn't it funny? That if you say to a woman who is in Texas, I love you, that word alone will drive cattle from Tennessee to Texas. That's what it will take. We pay a price to love. But I think our hearts should be enlightened enough that we, are, we have no problem with that. We confound the world when they abuse us, when they say things, when they criticize us, when they shout at us, when they say all the, and yet we are still able to stand in the love of God and be able to receive them and appreciate them and love them in spite of. The world is expecting to receive the love of God. And that's why God set you apart to share his love to those. Some of the other people, there may be a good reason for not liking them. But that's what we were called to do.